Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the no-fluff actionable marketing podcast for marketers, marketing consultants, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, you'll learn how to develop a marketing organization where brand, performance, and creative departments are actually working together uh, with the same goals, the same purpose, and basically how to find balance between brand, performance marketing, creatives, and to make them work together. So yeah, my guest today is the head of marketing and brand strategy at Canoe. It's an LA-based company creating electric vehicles for subscription only. Quite interesting because they are launching their first vehicle in 2021, so next year. Prior to joining Canoe, my guests were for General Mill, Activision, Lyft, and MeUndies. So a lot of uh, diverse experience there. Matt Carbo, super happy to have you on board. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So it seems like, you know, if you go on LinkedIn or if you talk to experts or like interviewing people like I do, it seems like marketers are either quote unquote creatives, you know, they're very into their brand, very into like creating strong brand image, making sure that it's a level of brand that people like talk about to their friends. And then you'll have the very like heavy performance based direct response type of marketer who would like write super solid sales copy and just try to generate a response out of you every, every time uh, they can, you know, using paid PPC is in landing pages and all of that. So what's your experience in this? Why not both? Why can't a marketer can, can't be both brand-oriented and performance-oriented? Yeah, so you know, one key problem that I see over and over again throughout my career, right? in particular, I would say this is mostly for digitally native e-commerce companies, right? direct-to-consumer, is this trade-off, this unnecessary trade-off between brand building, creativity, and, and ultimately efficiency. right? So Companies will often follow the beaten path of the crowded social landscape because they can test quickly and, and quote unquote efficiently and be where they think that their people are. But in doing so, they often fail to create a culture that's grounded in research, empathy, calculated risk taking. I, I say calculated because if you do an exceptional amount of research, you, you understand your people and, and the risk taking becomes less risky and ultimately creative investment, right? And as a result, they milk for short term growth at the expense of building a power, powerful connection with an audience that, that could have loved them and not waited for the next discount code, right? And I think that ultimately what I've seen is, is that these marketing organizations ultimately become very siloed, right? People, working are on, people are working against different KPIs. You have foundational brand elements that are never quite finished or aligned upon. Uh, and you often have a quick reflex to take the more measurable path versus a creative risk that was that was worth in, investing in. And my perspective on it, and this is this is just me, right? But it is that it should always just be called marketing, right? It should be one organization. It should be focused on the same KPIs. Everybody should be rowing in the same direction. And there's many things that you can do to set yourselves up for, for success, both in the short term and the long term. And, and that really harkens back to balance. And I'm happy to talk about what that means. So I, I, I don't think that what you say is only relevant to like direct to consumer brand uh, or companies at all. Uh, it's this, I think it's the exact same problem everywhere. B2B, SaaS startups, consulting agencies, it's always the same thing. So I would say that it's, this episode is very much relevant for everyone involved in marketing in some ways, uh, because I've heard this from many different industries. Uh, so yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's only, only relevant to direct to consumer type of brand. So if we, if we say like, let's just take a, an example, if you say that in a marketing organization, we only have performance-based marketers, meaning their goal is to generate a response from consumers as fast as possible, like through 
campaign, like uh, landing pages, like, you know, generating a direct response, getting something mm-hmm. out of them really uh, straight away. Yep. What, what are the issues with just having performance marketers, performance marketing in your marketing organization? Yeah. So I'm going to give my friend Mayor Gupta some credit here. He's the CMO of, of Freshly, but he often, and both, both he and I often talk about what we call same day gratification syndrome, right? So in other words, the short term lowest acquisition cost mindset without realizing the long-term damage that it does to the brand and, and ultimately growth, right? So you you start by setting an acquisition cost and top-line revenue goal. You spend 100% of your marketing on direct response, you know, clickbait, conversion, 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 right? You realize that your, your acquisition cost is higher than you'd like. You start adding discount codes and band-aids to acquire more competition, get stiffer, more, more discounts. You're continuing to reinforce a negative behavior, right? You're you're essentially the, the goal is is always not just that people are talking about your brand, but it's it's how people are talking about your company and, and your brand and your offerings, right? You can buy people, but ultimately your retention, which is meant to be obviously much less expensive than acquisition, actually almost becomes an acquisition exercise again to to get people to actually repeat. So the net result is that you eventually lose market share. Your brand doesn't really exist. There's no sort of emotional or cultural connection that's irreplaceable. And you know your offer stops working because competition comes in, often people that maybe have VC money and don't care about profits yet. So you're going to get into a money fight. When I was working at Lyft and we had to take on Uber, if we would have had that mindset 100% of the time, we would have lost, right? Because Uber had a lot more resources than we did. So we had to really think about how can we differentiate from a brand standpoint, right? And the perspective we took at Lyft was honor the drivers even more so than the passengers, right? Uber was focused on, let's put the customer first, the person in the back seat, right? This is, this is very traditional, like taxi cab, next level. And, and, and they were successful in making you feel more special than you had growing up with cabs, right? But what we said was, well, you know, I, I think the biggest issue that people have with ride sharing at the time is, you know, getting in the car with a stranger and, and ultimately not knowing sort of who they are, right? And so we said, well, if we can focus on them and how interesting they are and the fact that they're doing this probably as a side hustle, not necessarily as their primary occupation, let's let's encourage you to want to get in the car. So we had a big pink fuzzy mustache, which which made it more approachable. And we actually encourage you to get in the front seat and fist bump your driver and have a conversation and learn something. And the time will pass from point A to point B because we're actually building brand and community. And that's a long tail thing, right? Like obviously Uber won very early and, and they had sort of a first mover and went global and swept up a lot of market, a lot of drivers, a lot of customers and process. But Lyft, from a brand standpoint, when you ask people, including my boss right now, James, who came from Uber and I came from Lyft, part of the reason why he hired me is because he felt like we beat them on brand, right? People who love Lyft truly love it. And so the solve here is is not to necessarily reduce your focus on acquisition or performance, but to invest in parallel in building the brand, right? right. Investing in content, investing in educating your consumer on the value of your product. So you can make 50% of your performance dollars hit 100% of your growth goals because you're using 50% of your marketing dollars on the brand. Mm-hmm. So you know you focus on that serendipity, that irrationality of marketing. You seek to obtain a multiplier effect from the top of funnel activities to drive organic and authentic connections that make people share 
and evangelize on behalf of the brands. And today, consumers are ultimately the owners of successful brands, not us. So, you know, the the negativity comes in if you don't do that and you focus on same day gratification syndrome, not only is it a struggle for your business externally to consumers, but if you don't do this, then the mindset can extend into culture. And I've seen that happen before where cross-functional team members feel the brand is cheapened, it's a ploy, it's driven by behavior negatively reinforced by push tactics. And then it makes employees want to tell others about your company less and ultimately want to work there less, which is bad. So great answer to a simple question. I like it. I would say one thing though about the discounting point, right? That cheapens the brand. Some brands rely on discounting because that's part of their customers. That's part of the brand. That's what customers want, right? Some, Some people don't like discounting or like couponing because because they save money, because it's it's a game. They feel like they're gaming the system, right? And so some businesses are entirely based around people wanting to game the system. And this is why they keep doing coupons, because that's what their consumers like. So there are certain conditions where this type of activity is actually worthwhile. But that's not the point of this of this episode. The, and let me reverse the question before we go into a step-by-step, like to how to find the balance between the two things. Now, let's say we have a marketing organization that only does creative brand related type of activities and don't do performance-based marketing at all. Are there any issues with that? Yeah, there absolutely are. I think that the concern where we've gone from these sort of broad phases over the last 50 years, right, of going from from like a, a black box, right, of, of the madman days, so to speak, right, of, you know, anything that we do is is going to convince consumers because the creative is going to be so good and, and, you know, we don't have to worry about that. You know, the measurement of that, it's just going to all translate into revenue. That's, that's absolutely unacceptable as well. But as I just mentioned, so is growth at all costs, right? And, and so is a focus on the short term. So ultimately, the solution lies in a balance, right? And, and you also don't want to just have organizations that are like that, because ultimately, you may have misaligned KPIs, right? So an example that I'll give would be if you had a, a major blockbuster movie launch, right? The, the next Avatar is, is coming out or, or whatever, and it's big enough, people are excited enough that they're going to you know, have pre-order tickets, right? So pre-orders is, is really what everybody at the organization or, or on that team should be aligned towards, right? But, but they release a trailer and the trailer gets the most views of any blockbuster movie ever, right? And and the creative team is like, we did it, guys. We we got the most views ever. Well, if that doesn't translate to the sort of North Star KPI of pre-orders, which is ultimately going to dictate probably how your movie is going to do at the box office, then you have an issue, right? And mm-hmm. and a lot of creative departments will, I think, you know, be the people in, in companies are lazy, right? They they want to rely on their expertise. They want to rely on, on what they're comfortable in. But ultimately, at the, at the end of the day, you have to orient people towards the same goals. And, and that's where having a balanced organization, and, and that's really the key here of both brand and, and growth or brand and performance, what have you, right? And a balanced team made up of, of sort of generalists and specialists is is critically important because you know, as I said in this other example before, you still want to have 50% of your of your dollars. And I'm just using 50%. It can be 60, it can be 30, whatever, it can be 80. But you know, some significant performance or a perform 
portion of your dollars on performance trying to orient towards shorter term growth goals, right? But then you want mm-hmm. 50% of your marketing dollars oriented towards brand building, which which takes time, but also can have an immediate and longer term impact depending on the efficacy of the creative. And that harkens back to uh, more foundational things, right? Like how well do you really understand your intended audience, right? And, and those are some of the things that I think are critically important that everybody across the department and, and to be honest, cross-functionally across the organization, there should be involvement in those strategic activities where you are going on the journey of learning about who you're trying to target so that everybody is aware. And then as you set up the foundational elements, right? What is your mission, your vision, your beliefs, your pillars, right? Your personality. So let's talk about all of this. Yeah. Right? Let's go into <laughs> details now because you're talking about a lot of interesting stuff. I know in my head, but it's not, it's not practical enough yet, right? So let's make it practical for people. Let's imagine like folks listening right now, they want to know, okay, that's all well and good. You sold me on the, on the creative plus performance base. You sold me on the having a balance. Now, how am I supposed to do that tomorrow when I go back to the office, right? So what is step one? It seems like you talk about like researching your audience, understanding them very well. Maybe that's step one. Like, let's say if you had, if I was hiring you as a consultant in a company and you had to, to set that up, where would you start? What would be step one? Right. I think that, first of all, ensuring that you have the right people in the right seats, right? So even before you start research, you want to make sure that you have that, that balanced team, right? You want to make sure that you have the right people that are actually going to be focused on the right activities, right? Do you have subject matter experts, but do you also have generalists who are able to be agile and adapt and do different jobs, right? So the first thing is, is taking a look at the team, making sure that, that that's correct. Obviously, not everybody is going to be able to have robust teams, right? So let's just take the hypothetical, hypothetical example that you have a very small, scrappy team and everybody is doing everything because it's a startup organization, right? That's mm-hmm. fine. So, so the real first step from there, yeah, is prioritizing research, right? And prioritizing establishing the brand foundation to ensure that everybody can be aligned to what it is you're out to do, right? Sort of ultimately your, your brand purpose, right? The, the pillars of things that are important to your consumers, right? So how do you do research? Well, there's a million different ways. It obviously depends on the, res- the resources that you have, but, but certainly you can actually talk to humans. You can obviously scour the web to, to understand what people are, are saying, right? You can read reports, you can hire consultants, you can you know, do a million different things that can enable you to really, really deeply understand you know, what are the, the pain points, needs, wants, desires, etc. of the people that we are going after. And, and ultimately, the most important thing is that you understand you know, who are the segments that we want to target, right? Demographically, behaviorally, psychographically. And then equally important, who do we want to deprioritize, right? And so how we do it here at Canoe is we think about who is the sort of, because we're pre-revenue, right? Because we're launching in 2021, we, we're trying to understand who are our earliest adopters, right? Who are the people that have a mindset alignment with you know, our, our offering and as well as, as what we're seeking to do from a, from a purpose standpoint, right? We're seeking to evolve the automotive industry and, and sort of democratize electric vehicles and, uh, and a membership, a subscription-based membership, which is something that automotive companies haven't really been able to do yet. But then there's also a halo effect. So if you target this sort of bullseye, then who else is going to be interested? And then there's also going to be a sort of fast follower or or late adopter, right? Uh, Segments who are probably going to adopt maybe three to five years after you've actually been launched. And there's just going to be people 
altogether who you should never take stock in because they're never going to want to, to purchase your offering because of X, Y, and Z reasons. So you really have to understand all that because that's going to pay dividends in the long run as you are putting dollars against marketing, right? You're trying to find how can you achieve a situation where $1 begets you 5 begets you 10 begets you 20 and so the research so, is critically important. So let's break that down because you're giving a few sources, but it's still not... I think you can go one level deeper. Again, you're, let's say I've hired you as a consultant and we need, to re- we need to get some results relatively fast. We need to have some research done relatively fast. We need to have that ready so that we can kick off you know, the actual marketing work of like creatives and performance mm-hmm. and all of that. So out of all the sources, you said a million sources, out of all of them, from your experience, what are the most efficient? Like what are the maybe the top three or even the number one thing you would do if you had no other choice but to do this thing? What would it be? Yeah. I mean, I think that there are some platforms out there. So, so one that, that we use is called remesh.ai, right? And what it does is it actually uses artificial intelligence to take what is typically a focus group and actually remove the bias, right? So ultimately how this works is that you have, let's say, 50 to 100 people who are answering questions as they're being asked by a moderator. They're all at their own computer. They're not in the same room. And ultimately what happens is they answer a question and then they get other people's responses, A or B, put in front of them recurringly for a couple minutes, right? So respondent 13 and 52's answer and then respondent 16 and 26's answer, right? And ultimately what that helps you understand is, is everybody is picking A or B, A or B, A or B each time. That helps you understand what is popularity and what is consensus of those answers, right? So without people knowing where the answers are coming from, you're getting a sense of, okay, what answers are people saying, but that's really just that person's opinion. Nobody else is gravitating towards that versus what are answers that many people are gravitating towards because there's something here. There's something universal here, right? Mm -hmm. So we really loved using Remesh as a tool because it helped us to sort of qualify what answers make more sense and, and what should we focus on versus what not to. And the, the key there is, is ensuring that you know, whoever you have actually participating in the research is you know, not lukewarm tea, right? You have to qualify people beforehand. So you have to work very closely as a team to ensure that you're, you're getting the right people in. So that way you can ensure that there are going to be people that can afford your offering or that are living in parts of the country that are actually going to be able to access your offering, right? So we're launching specifically in LA in 2021. Well, we better make sure that we have people in California who are on those surveys, right? So Remesh is, is a great one. That's just one example that, that we use recently. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, that's a specific tool, right? But beside that, I think what you're getting into is you could do the same just interviewing people. You could, in, you could do the same by like maybe sending surveys or, or just talking to people one-on-one. So beyond, exactly. so beside this, this tool that might not be there in two years or five years, 10 years, what you, you briefly mentioned that you briefly mentioned the wants, the needs, the problems and whatever. So once, once you've qualified those people, once you know they fit the demographic and whatever, do you also qualify them in terms of whether they give a, they care about electric vehicles, whether they, they have already had Tesla, like, what do you do? Like, do you actually just talk to people who are very, very likely to be strong, strongly interested in what you do or, or is it wider? So you have to ask about a few different things, right? You have to ask about uh, generally, yes, like, are they predisposed to electric vehicles? Are they predisposed to subscriptions? Things like that, right? That are obviously more more higher level. And then you have to cross-reference that with two other things. 
are they predisposed to our specific offering, right? So do we ask them questions about canoe and do we put images in front of them and right try to get a sense for do they think the car is is really cool or really weird? And do they think that a subscription is more attractive than a lease or financing or ownership, right? And and why or why not? And the the other thing you have to understand is from sort of a willingness to pay standpoint, vis-a-vis, you know, what they pay today or what they would be willing to pay for something like this. Right. So those three things you have to triangulate their predisposition to electric vehicles. Even if they don't have one today, do they want one? Do they hope that their next vehicle is electric or do they hope to have one at some point in time or do they care about sustainability? Then do they love our offering? And then also, would they have a willingness to pay that we feel would match up with with what our pricing is ultimately going to be, which which we haven't gone public with yet? Right. So those people, which will probably early on be a smaller percentage of the population are the people that you need to focus on right away because they're going to not only be the early adopters, they're going to be the ones who are going okay. to evangelize. So now we know who they are, the people we want to ask questions. What type, what do you want to know out of them? Like, what do you try to understand? You try to understand as, as much as possible because you're going to want to understand the, the communications and things that are going to, to resonate with them, right? So you're not always going to talk about sustainability, right? For us here, we we actually talk about, you know, understanding people's lives in cities because we're gonna fall we're gonna focus specifically on launching in major urban areas. We want to understand their hobbies. We want to understand their use cases, right? How would you potentially use this in your life? Is this going to be for road trips or is this going to be for commuting, right? And we also want to understand, you know, the the things that have been painful for them as a function of you know, owning a car, right? So do they hate going to the DMV and standing in line? Do they hate dealing with repairs or registration? Or do they hate dealing with insurance? They hate dealerships, right? All of those things are critically important in terms of figuring out how do we cater messaging to them that is going to to resonate as far as showing that we have a much more convenient and you know valuable value proposition, right? As a function of, of our pricing and everything that comes with Canoe. But then I think the other thing is that you want to understand how do you connect with them as as humans. And our thing at, at Canoe is that we're trying to we're trying to be less of a car company and more of a of a company that's that really starts with people first, right? So we're really focusing on the the user value versus an if we build it, they will come mentality. And a great example of that is how we're trying to build a community around our waitlist. So we launched our waitlist, which we call the first wave a couple of weeks ago. And rather than just putting money down and sitting on a waitlist for a year and a half, two years, we actually made it free to join, open to anybody. And we actually have gamification principles embedded into the waitlist to make it fun. So one is that if you refer other people or if you take surveys, which help give us information about you as, as a person and can help us sort of qualify you as a customer, and, and learn more about how we can optimize our offering for people, those things allow you to move up in line. So if you have a successful referral or if you take a survey, you can actually move mm-hmm. up in line. And yeah. the more referrals, that, yeah. We've seen that many times before, right? Like in a lot of startups doing waiting lists like that. But I want to go back to what you said before, which is, okay, you've qualified those people, you're asking them a few questions. And it seems like, so the question you're asking them about is the pains of the current solutions they're using. So in this instance, it's owning a car, or potentially renting a car for holidays and whatnot, right? Am I am I correct? The potential wants in the future, like you know, are they open to subscription and whatever? But I think this is very what you say that it's very rational, I would say, type of information, right? It's very 
I wouldn't say basic, but this is kind of, yeah, you want to know that. But then beyond that, you ask, are you trying to gather questions or to ask questions that are more beyond like, you know, the type of message that they like, the type of other brands that they like that might not be at all related to automobile industry, like so that you have creatives that, that correlates with that. Like what else do you like to ask yeah. those people? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. I mean, we're, we're trying to understand what types of social media platforms are they on and, and who do they follow, right? And, and why, right? We try to understand the personifications of our brand, right? So, so who would be driving our car, right? And, and, and what types of brands, to your point, really inspire them and, and why, right? Is it about education? Is it about entertainment? Is it about connecting with them? Is it about diversity in marketing? Is it about you know, standing up for causes, right, that, that resonate with them today and, and not just trying to stand up for a cause because that seems like the expedient thing to do, right? But does it actually connect back to their sort of overarching purpose, right? So we're asking all kinds of things, right, that will help us, of course, create creative that is going to resonate with them. That's also going to, to my point earlier about sort of DR performance-driven marketing is, is that we have to have things that are able to transcend. And my biggest mandate to my team and, and the companies that I work for is not just to understand consumers, but really understand today's consumers and to also understand you know, what's important to them looking forward, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's really critical for us at Canoe that we've created a vehicle that is ready for a near future that's more electric, more autonomous, more connected, increasingly shared, because ultimately people are going to be sitting in the back of one of these without a driver, right? In our couch-like backseat, you know, in the next 10 to 15 years, right? And it's going to be electrically powered and it's going to be driven by cameras, radars, and sensors, right? So we have to also understand uh, how do people feel about that? Are they excited about that, right? And, and how can we paint a picture of, of how cities are evolving, right? Whether that's uh, youthification, right? Or, or whether that's just issues that are happening in cities and how can we fit into that equation moving forward? So it becomes bigger than just product marketing, right? I mean, if we were going to yeah, be yeah, just yeah. another car company, we would just show our car all the time, right? And, and that's fine. But for us, we're trying to humanize it. We talk about being more like Supreme than Tesla, right? It's really about people and culture and being relevant and creating something that resonates with people today and tomorrow versus looking backwards, right? So all of the questions that we're asking to your point are really about understanding all these types of things. So you're, yeah, you're looking forward to the future and painting the future that you want to see so that it fits right. the product that you're going to sell, like the new game that people, some people are playing versus the old game, you know, the old game of people owning a car, not using it for 95% of the time versus the new that's game right. that some people are starting to play, which is they don't pay for like, they don't pay 15 grand for a car that stays idle. They, they just run stuff. They, they just share stuff. They, they save money this way and, and save the planet on the other side. Okay. So that's, so that's interesting. That's the way, that's the question you asked. That's what you want to know. Now you have this information and you're, you've already hinted at a few things you're doing on the back of that, but uh, imagine again, you are a consultant for my company, right? At this stage. Mm-hmm. So you only have this research and none of the stuff that you're describing with the company you work for right now has been created just yet. Like you have a lot of certainty obviously about the, about your journey at Canoe and what you're doing. But like imagine that you don't have those answers just yet that you need to actually develop them. So let's say you have this research, you actually understand those top customers. 
understand their wants, their needs, the problems with current solutions, who they are, what, who they follow on social media, why they like those brands, what do they connect with, how do they see the future. Now you have this information, which is probably gold, but it's not gold in a, in a, in a, in a, like a, in a, in a format that you can use right now. You know, it's like you need to transform it to make it valuable. So how do you take that and make it into the balancing the creatives with the performance? Like how do you take this raw data into something that you can action? What's the next step? Yeah. So I think that a lot of people would jump to making a bunch of different creative executions, right? Based on the information that you have. And and testing, right, and and learning, and and certainly you, you can do that in in parallel if if you want. But to me, the most important thing is ensuring that the entire organization has been able to synthesize it, right, understand it, and then that you take the time as a team, no matter how small or big, to establish you know what your your overarching brand foundation is, right. So what is your purpose, right? Your mission, your vision, your beliefs, your pillars, your personality. How do you show up? Right. And, and then having a cadence that you refresh them periodically. But if you do this, if you can establish pillars, right, let's say it's three to five things that you want to focus on because that's what's important to the priority segment that you've identified, then that will make the entire organization grow in the same direction versus it ultimately can get to a point where it becomes very subjective. So if you don't do this, you may ask 10 different people at the organization how old is my target consumer, right? And they may say anywhere from 22 to 45, right? And tell me about them, right? You're going to get seven different answers or, or what do we stand for? And you're going to get 12 different answers, right? So it's really, really important that people take the time to do this work. It's hard, but it's really, really important. And, and once you get there, if you can do that, then you can be a lot more agile and focused in terms of the creative exploration that you go on because it's all grounded in the same foundational work. I, I completely agree with this, right? It's insane, like especially in marketing, right? Like where you you should be pretty close to customers, to consumers. So you have a lot of knowledge, internal knowledge. Crazy how as soon as you open the, you know, like talk to other people in the organization who are not in marketing, or even sometimes in just within the marketing team, it's crazy how the knowledge differs, how people have assumptions. So you really want to control that from the start. You really want to tell a story internally first right. that everyone gets behind, right? Now there's a lot of buzzwords that you mentioned, right? And I, I know it's sure. for you, it's just like purpose, mission, values, vision, etc. Sure. A lot of it is could be very synonym, like what's the vision different what how is a vision different than a purpose? So beyond that, you mentioned those five kind of core items, and I like that. It's more like what are the top five things you want people to remember about us as a company, right? So are you married to a specific, specific concept or like when you meant the five concepts, are they just the core ideas? It doesn't matter if you call them vision, mission, purpose, whatever. No, I, let me take the bullshit out of it. <laughs> okay. All right, please do. Um, right. Let's do it. So, so your mission is what you, it's an, it's an action oriented thing. It's what everybody at the company wakes up to do every day, that day. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are you, what are you selling? What are you seeking to achieve? Right. And, and this should be something that is relatively tangible, right? Your vision is, is lofty. It's ethereal. It's, it's something that may never be achieved, but you want to get closer to that, right? Someday it's, it's, it's a world where blah, 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 right? It's, it's better. It's more sustainable. It's more stress-free. It's greener, what have you, right? Your beliefs fundamentally reinforce both of those, right? So 
it helps you articulate exactly what you stand for, right? And these are the things we believe, which means that if we if there's things that that don't align with these beliefs, then we don't believe those. And that is not what we stand for. So it helps to make very, very concrete how these things come to life. The personality is, okay, well, when I'm writing copy or when I have visuals that are communicating to people in, in some way, shape or form, right? What do we sound like? What do we look like? And I think that a lot of companies will just start doing shit. And quite frankly, it's really, really important that you take the time to think about, are we approachable? Are we crass? Do we use exclamation marks? Do we just use periods, right? And, and do we use emojis? And, and do we take political stances? What, like all of those things are, are really important, right? And, and if you can basically create a personality of a brand similar that you would think about a person, it becomes really, really powerful. Now, can that be can that can that be wide ranging and diverse? Sure. Sometimes I'm serious. Sometimes I'm sarcastic. Sometimes I'm funny, or I think I'm funny, but I'm not. Right. And and sometimes I can and I can be more subdued. A brand can do that, but it, it needs to be very focused and zero in on on how you you want to be perceived. Right. right. And then your pillars. The last thing that you talked about. Right. Like your pillars should be the sort of core things that that you want to stand for. Right. So so maybe it's three or four things. Right. And for us, maybe it's Focusing on you know having a a, a bold product, uh, maybe it's a, a business model that makes you you feel peace of mind, right? That's seamless. Maybe we want to talk about the future of cities and and what that represents for people, what have you, right? So those are the things, and then are the closest to actually how we show up and and the types of things that come through. But it all ladders from your mission and your vision. Which you know, as I said, your mission is very tangible. Your vision is something that you aspire to over decades so hopefully that's that's helpful it probably it seems too bullshitty but and it's fine it's fine for us as marketers i think it makes sense to me right but I, what i can't help thinking about is how do you convince people outside of the marketing team to believe that it's not bullshit how do you go up to the product team to the engineers to the c-suite and potentially the ceo needs to be behind this right the ceo needs to be the person actually sharing all of this it can't just come from a marketing executive or maybe it can so you have to go on the journeys together. As marketers, you know, we want to be involved in things that are not only based on, on advertising, right? Whether it's CX or product innovation or establishment of, of you know, KPIs and strategic planning or employer branding with HR. Well, okay, well, if, if we want to be involved in, in those things, then we have to take cross-functional partners on the journeys with us when it comes to research and when it comes to establishing these these foundational elements, right? So if if you're just having a dog and pony show at the end and you're saying, hey, here's our person, right? This is Brad or this is Jen or whoever, right? And and hey, here's our mission, here's our beliefs, here's our vision, voila, it's very, very hard to get buy-in, right? And and just like any meeting where you're, you know, going to speak to the the important people who are the decision makers who can move things forward. If you don't have a room of people that are already in consensus and, and have various viewpoints, you know, and, and expertise, right, and, and backgrounds, etc., then it doesn't seem like you've necessarily done your diligence, even if you have. And so, to me, anytime that we do this, we we have people from all of the departments, you know, whether it's engineers, whether it's finance, whether it's product, whether it's customer experience, whether it's HR, all of those things should have at least at least one representative who can go on the journey with you to represent that function and, and that 
way of thinking. And if you do that, then you'll set yourself up for alignment and the process will actually ironically go a lot quicker. So we've identified the customers we want to, to reach. We've asked them the right question. We've built the foundation, our brand foundation. We've built those brand foundations with the entire team, not just in silo with the marketing team. So now we have, it seems like we have the strong foundation to start to get started and actually ship stuff, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. So what's the next step? What do you do then with all of this? Right. So I think the next step, assuming that you have the right team in place, right? You have subject matter experts and, and you have generalists, right? And you have this, this great diverse group of people that can get after it. You get after it. And the reason that you have a strong bias to action is because ultimately you know exactly what you need to do. I think that, you know, you, you want to build obviously your, your strategy, right? You want to get that aligned upon at the leadership level to ensure that, you know, they, they know the activities that you're going to focus on. But if you know ultimately your consumer to the extent that you should, your, your targeted segments, then you should start deploying creative, right? And, and that's where it's important to have that, that test and learn and optimize mindset, right? Because you're, you're never going to, you know, hit a home run right out of the gates. And if you do, it's fantastic, you know, <laughs> good for you, right? But I think that there's, there's always improvements that can be made. And, and that's where you have to continue to have a balance of a short-term and long-term mindset where, you know, there's going to be some things that are, are harder to measure, right? And, and they're higher up in the funnel and there's things that you do to bring people in in a, a really, you know, unassuming but approachable and inclusive way where people latch onto your brand and they start to take notice. And there's other things that are, are a little bit more direct and, and measurable. And so you want to have that portfolio of activity happening a, across the potential channel levers that you can pull, right? So, so for me... We, we figure that out as a team, right? And we start partnering with, with creative and we start saying, okay, like we want to deploy across these different channels. And, and let's say hypothetically, you know, we're, we're targeting a target that's, that's much more Gen Z, right? Then yeah, you're probably going to have things like TikTok and, and Byte, you know, and Snapchat is as part of your, part of your strategy, right? Is some of the tactics that you use. But if you're just doing, you know, Edward talked about this on your on your podcast a few weeks ago, but if you're just doing Snapchat filters just to do Snapchat filters without actually understanding why you're doing Snapchat filters, then you're flushing money down the toilet, right? So yeah. and and, yeah. and and generations have uh, are as different inside a generation than they are to other generations as well. Right? Exactly. So you need to be very careful about like Gen Z and millennials and all of that. Yeah, you can make a lot of generaliza- uh, generalization. However, if you've done your research right in the first place, you know better. You know that's right. That was a generalization, that was, right? Yeah, I know. That was generalization. I, yeah. I like to, to 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 catch you on it, so just to uh, just for my own enjoyment. But uh, no, to be more serious, um, the beyond Gen Z, beyond like your research and whatever. So that's all well and good. Like you start deploying creatives and stuff. But then, what I'm still what I'm still struggling to understand is how you make sure that the brand activity, the one that are top of the funnel that are there to really build affinity and whatever, still gets some portion of the share. Because when you start, let's say, if I hire you, I want results now, as well as results in, in two years, because I kind of understand that brand is important. But how do you convince someone to spend, I don't know, like you said, 50%. I, I mean, I know it's arbitrary. Right. But how do you convince right. a CEO, let's say, who doesn't necessarily un- understand that to actually spend this money and show that it works? On the brand right. side. Right. Well, everything is measurable, right? So you still have to have plans that are grounded in, in what you expect to measure, right? So if you're going to do 
experiential marketing. If you're going to have an event, right, then then you can monitor traffic, you can collect leads, you can have a a digital, obviously, component, right, to to the event where you are, you know, broadcasting that out and you're you're capturing engagement and and you're directing people to the site, etc. Right. So so there shouldn't be anything that you can't measure, right? If if you need to a B test something, right? Doing something in one city and, and not in another, or or if you, you know, are are going to be trying a, a variety of of different channels, right? Then then don't necessarily stack them right at that moment. Try to to work early to understand what's working and, and what's not and then optimize towards the ones that are. But fundamentally everything is measurable. And so to get them to support from a monetary standpoint, you shouldn't just go in and say, hey, I think we should do this because this, this feels good, right? At the same time, you people understand that that those more traditional tactics, right? Whether they're TV or whether they're radio or or today, I mean, we're talking about we're talking about a podcast, right? Podcasts becoming a very very big deal, um, or in real life experiences, those are things that that can still have uh, a tremendous amount of impact and um, a multiplier effect if if you do them right, right? And I think if you know your consumer really well and you want to have an event, you should do something that is going to surprise and delight them and resonate and add value for them, right? Versus on the flip side, if you're just going to do, you know, ads in social media, then you need to ensure that the creative is is resonating as well, right? So regardless of what you do, whether it's top of funnel, middle of funnel, or, or lower in the funnel, everything should have creative and communications that is going to really excite and entice your consumer to ultimately move closer and closer to conversion. So for us, when we put together these plans, we want to make sure that anything that we're doing, we can tie back to commerce, right? That's the most important thing. Fundamentally, I always talk about that with my teams. If we're going to do an experience, right? So when we revealed our canoe, our, our first vehicle to the world in September, we had three different events across LA over a couple months called it our reveal tour. And we were able to engender a tremendous amount of press, right? Positive press and, and earned media, which then was able to beget us a lot of traffic, emails, which ultimately we were able to convert to waitlisters, which is where we're at right now, right? We don't have sales yet. So we're trying to get as many people on the waitlist as possible. And so if we don't focus on those KPIs, and, and if we don't have every single person across the organization focused on those true north KPIs or that one specific KPI, then, then, then they shouldn't give us the money and we yeah. shouldn't do it. So that's what you were mentioning at the start, right? Having a, a true north metric across the company and across marketing that you all share. That's right. That's so right. for you, as an example, would be a number of people on the waiting list. That's right. And actually, you mentioned Edward's episode, and I remember him talking about a way to monitor brand activity, uh, like even TV, like on TV channel, radio, like stuff that are quite intangible where you can't necessarily say, enter this coupon code TV20 to, you know, to get 20% off, you know, something a bit more subtle. You mentioned it, testing it between two cities. So you can basically do A-B tests in, in real life, meaning That's right. you take a city with 500,000 people who fit roughly the same demographic and there's another city with 500,000 people, roughly the same type of population, and just blast like creatives, brand, events, whatever in one city, and you don't do nothing in the other. That's right. And you monitor then what's the difference in terms of uh, in terms of your KPI. So, uh, do you have what's your what's your advice on picking one metric that matters? Because I know from experience, it's incredibly tough. Uh, everyone wants to measure multiple things. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it needs to 
the whatever it is that's tied to conversion and, and ultimately the the health of the brand, right? So some people use use ratios, right, to to understand what's actually actually working, right? So if you're you're looking at something like, you know, monthly active users, you should also understand your daily active users to understand the amount of people who are are actually active monthly on on a daily basis, right? So you get the health and you can the engagement of the active user. So I think also looking at, at long-term revenue as a function of, of acquisition costs, right? It's okay to 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 sort of 2x, you know, spend more for a user that's ultimately going to be 4x more valuable, right? So if you use acquisition costs alone, then it's not actually indicative of the health of your business. But if you're doing it as a function of the long-term revenue, so once we actually get to launch and we have people that have joined the membership and we start to see the trends of how often people are turning, pausing, et cetera, versus the people that are lasting longer, then obviously we're going to want to acquire people that are more predisposed to being longer-term members with us. So I think right now it's it's easier for us, right? We're, we're focused on ensuring that all of our activities are oriented towards getting people to join the waitlist. But once we get into actual launch, then that true north metric will will shift more towards something that is indicative of, of you know what are the the better health indicators of our business. Yeah, you get closer to the to the money. And I think that's what experienced marketers do more than than others is, is really this connection with revenue profits, making sure it doesn't stay fluffy. You mentioned TikTok, like the TikTok views is not the ultimate true north of your marketing department or else you're in in deep trouble. Unless you work for TikTok. Yeah, exactly. Unless you, unless you work for TikTok. So you, we've talked about building like creative the, the brand foundation. We've talked about doing the right research, uh, codifying those brand foundation. How do you then, like, is there something here in this kind of method that you're laying out here that I've forgotten to ask you about that you feel needs to be mentioned to kind of close the loop of, uh, of how to find balance between creatives and, and performance-based marketing? I think one thing that is really important that is often an afterthought, but it's getting a lot of attention these days is making sure that, that the group of people that you have at the start is, is, is diverse, right? People from different professional backgrounds, cultural backgrounds that you bring a different vantage point to a variety of key issues, right? If you look around and, and you're, you know, a bunch of white men in a room, you probably have a problem because there's a large, there's, there's a large chance that, you know, you're going to have female or female customers, right? And, and you're going to have customers of people from, from varying backgrounds, right? If, if you look at where the direction of, of this country, at least, is, is going, right? It's, it's increasingly diverse. Here in California, one in two people is, is you know, Hispanic, right? So I think it's really important that you take a look at your, your teams, you take a look at the makeup of your teams, and you ensure that on one hand, you have people that come from, from diverse backgrounds. On the other hand, as I mentioned, you want to have generalists and specialists, right? You want to ensure that you have people that are deep into subject matter and, and can own those disciplines and help you move and be on the cutting edge of, of those particular things. But then you also want to have generalists who are able to take on those projects that are more gray, right? And are able to, to navigate ambiguous and, and uncharted territories. So for us, we're doing something that's sort of never been done. So we absolutely have to have a balance of both. We can't just have people that are all generalists and we can't just have people that are all specialists. So the HR portion of it, I think, is is really, really important and often one that is sort of left to the wayside. Yes, uh, I completely agree with you. I think there's plenty of research done 
proving that the more diverse your team is, and we're not necessarily talking about demographics only, right. really about like psychographics, what they believe and all, the, the better, because they represent your customers. So amen to that. Yeah, Matt, you've been a pleasure. Thank you so much for going through all of this intense questioning with me. I knew you had a lot of stuff under your sleeve, but I just wanted to make sure you, you, you got a chance to, to tell them. Uh, I have just three questions before I let you go. What do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think that it's important that, I mean, it makes sense based on what I've been saying, right? But, but focus on, on the simple things before you dive into the complex things, complex things, right? Like someone could talk about AI and blockchain and XR and wearables and sustainability, et cetera, and all that shit, right? But for me, again, it's important to focus on the foundational things that we can rely on, right? So, so you need to know who are your people and have you put them at the center of every decision? What do you stand for and what change are you motivated to make in the world? And, and are you rele- relevant, right? And I, I mean this, um, I mean this culturally and, and I mean this as a function of what your intended consumer cares about, right? So, so if we talk about Gen Z, right? Like, I don't want to generalize for an entire generation, right? But in general, they'll be the most ethnic, ethnically diverse generation in American history, right? By 2030, they'll make up 30% of the labor force and they'll have the deepest understanding of growing up in a, in a natively digital age. So what are you going to do about that before thinking about a chatbot for your business, right? Um, yes. So the long-term thinking is always just as important as the short-term, if not more. And the key to finding the right balance, the key is to it all is, is to find the right balance. So again, who are those people? What do you stand for? And how are you relevant to them? And I, I think that whether we're talking about 10, 20, 50 years from now, regardless of where the technology is and, and whether you're working side by side with a robot or not, uh, those things are always going to be critically important. What are the top three resources you'd recommend our listeners? So it could be anything from podcasts, conferences, books. Yeah, so... So I recently read a book by Ben Horowitz called What You Do Is Is Who You Are. He's one of the founders of, of Injuries and Horowitz and has more experience investing in startups than most people on the planet. Uh, it gives four different historical perspectives about leadership based on historical data from slave rebellions to the samurai to a prison gang leader. He examples principles from these and, and puts them into a modern light. He's trying to examine what great company culture should look like. And I think that when I read this, it, it helped me think about how I can operate uh, in a better and more empathetic way and make positive progress to understanding others and, and what drives behavior. So um, What You Do Is Who You Are by Ben Horowitz is awesome. Another book that I love, which is an oldie, but a goodie, is, is Good to Great by Jim Collins. Mm-hmm. So people have probably read it. If they haven't, you should. You know, Jim talks about concepts you can apply to any business, like the flywheel and the hedgehog concept. So Hedgehog is, is actually about the intersection of three things, right? What you're deeply passionate about, what you can be best in the world at, and what drives your economic engine. So when you figure this out, you as the hedgehog develop the spikes, quote unquote, that you need to fend off other foxes trying to impede on, on your turf. So it also talks a lot about people, focus, discipline, and patience. And the one thing that Jim notes, which I think is relevant to what we've talked about for the last hour, is that not one of the good to great companies focused obsessively on growth. Not a single one, right? It's it's really important yeah. to have that balance, short term and long term perspective. And then the third, if I'm being honest, is LinkedIn. Honestly, on LinkedIn, by following other marketing leaders, companies, and even hashtags related to marketing and leadership, 
it's been super invaluable for me in terms of keeping a finger on the pulse of what's happening, trending, et cetera, in our industry. So if you're not on LinkedIn, I recommend giving it a try in particular because it's gained a ton of steam in the past year or two. There's probably a lot of, of bullshit. So, you know, buyer beware, but I think uh, it also can have a lot of merit. So check it out. I absolutely agree on the three out there. The Good to Great is an absolute fantastic book. And I love the fact that they, they use actual data research for yes. years of the research to build a conclusion, which is not the case of most books. So yeah, thanks for, for sharing this one. Matt, again, you've been a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your kind of your playbook in detail. Uh, where can listeners connect with you, learn more from you? Yeah, so in terms of Canoe, uh, go to canoe.com and you can find Canoe basically anywhere that Social media exists, actually, including our own podcasts called um, Get In, Let's Go, but at Canoe, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, etc. And then me, mostly on LinkedIn, uh, look me up, Matt Kerbel, and I'd love to connect. Thanks, man. Cool. Thanks, Louis. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.